Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, today is the eighth, and it, today is also going to be the final part of this particular series. I know I said perhaps we'd have nine parts, but uh, today part eight is going to be the last part of this series uh, for now. And I want us today to look closely at the most famous passage in all of Judaism, uh, the Shema, Yahafta, Deuteronomy 6, with the goal of getting our houses in order through family-based uh, and family-driven discipleship. So turn with me to the beginning of Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 1. Devarim, book of Deuteronomy uh, 6, verse 1. And uh, it says, you know, these are the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking. Commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to, pres- uh, where you're going over to possess it, so that you, your son, and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and commandments which I'm commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, uh, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the context here is that the children of Israel are about to finally, after 40 years, about to finally enter the promised land. They had been uh, approximately 40 years... they have been uh, approximately 40 years earlier when the 10 spies had brought back a bad report uh, about the land. And the people sided with them and, and rebelled against the Lord. And therefore, they were forbidden to enter the land for 40 years until that whole generation died out, all except Joshua and Caleb, uh, who brought back a good report. And now here in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching a series of, of, of his final sermons to prepare the people to go in and possess the land and, and to live there as a distinct set-apart people, the people of God. And then Moses goes on to say this, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And this is the famous Shema V'yahafta. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, is your, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as symbols on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Now, based on these Torah instructions, how do we go about uh, the uh, process of getting our own houses in order? We need to start, I believe, Uh, with the multi-generational vision that's laid out here in Deuteronomy 6. And I I want us to look today at several principles based on this famous passage. So if we're to begin to get our own houses in order, we must, number one, put this on the overhead. Number one, we must worship God without rivals. That's number one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord, yud heh uh, as God's personal name, his covenantal name, denoting that he enters into a personal covenantal relationship with us. He is a covenant-keeping God. And the word for God here, Elohim, is of course plural, uh, uh, and yet we're told, clearly told that he is a chad, he is one. 
Uh, and throughout the scriptures, the word achad can mean a complex or a compound unity. Uh, for example, like a husband and wife are said to become achad, one flesh. A bundle of sticks is said to, to make achad at one bundle. Uh, many grapes forming one achad cluster or bunch. And so the word Elohim is seen as hinting at the plurality of persons, or more specifically, the triunity of the Godhead within one and only one God. Indeed, in Jewish mystical writing, uh, we read this, and put this on the overhead as well, about the Shema. It says this, in the daily form of prayer, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we, read, we first read Adonai, then Eloheinu, and again Adonai, which together make one unity, Echad. But how can three be one? Only through the re revelation of the Holy Spirit and with closed eyes. Even our, our Jewish mystical tradition uh, acknowledges that God is one and yet manifests himself as three. Now, the Israelites uh, were about to enter the land of Canaan where the people worshiped many gods. And it's as if Moses is saying here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, put this on the overhead as well, these are paraphrases, as if he's saying, you're about to enter a land where they have a God for everything, but you, don't forget, you have a God who is everything. So if you want to get your own house in order, the first thing you must do is worship God without rivals. So we must not repeat the sins of Israel who fell into worshiping all these other gods in the land of, of Canaan, of Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech and other pagan gods in the land of Israel, and, and they became influenced by the Canaanite nations that they failed to drive out. Indeed, the Israelites worshiped Molech by sacrificing their babies to him, uh, by burning them alive, by placing them on the hands of his statue, which were, had been heated with hot coals. How does one do that? How did our people forget the Lord our God is one Lord? And that he'll have no other gods before him, meaning no other gods in his presence. How did the Israelites, our people, fall into worshiping a pagan god and sacrificing to him, who in turn, this pagan god in turn, promised them to bring them rain uh, and crops uh, and abundance and greater material wealth? The same way we do today. The same way a girl today is told, you're young. And if you have that baby, you won't be able to finish school. You won't be able to get as good of a job. You won't have as much prosperity. But if you sacrifice that baby uh, on the modern day altar of Baal or Moloch, you open up all these opportunities for your greater prosperity. Different idol, same result. We in America worship the God of prosperity. And many, many of us are willing to slaughter our children on this, to this God in order to achieve it. We worship the God of convenience. Uh, we marveled, for example, as science was able to look into the womb uh, and detect certain maladies uh, in the baby within. Uh, the people were all excited when the doctors were able to detect certain chromosomal defects within the baby in the womb. Why were they so excited? Because the fact is that today, over 90% of all Down syndrome babies are aborted. That's why their people were so excited. So they could now kill their disabled children because it wouldn't be convenient to try to raise this child. So 90% are now murdered in the womb. Why? Because that baby is an inconvenience. 
Now, what happens next when we can determine eye color and you prefer blue over brown? What happens when we can determine intellect and you want to wait for that high IQ genius? Especially today, where most parents no longer want large families, where two to three is considered now the max, and the mentality is a boy for you, a girl for me, and praise uh, a, girl, a boy for me, a girl for you, and praise the Lord, we're finally through. <laughs> and of course, there's one exception that's allowed, to have, where you're allowed to have a third child, and that's if the first two are of the same gender. But then that's it. That's the unwritten rule in our culture. And that anti-family mentality, sadly, is found even within the body of Messiah. Don't believe me? Just walk into any average megachurch with six or more kids, and they'll look at you like you have a third eye in the middle of your forehead. <laughs> Why? Because we worship the God of this age, the God of ease, the God of comfort, the God of convenience, the God of prosperity. We have all sorts of rivals today to the one true God. We no longer believe the Lord our God is one Lord. We no longer believe the Shema. We live with the modern day, uh, in a modern day pagan culture, and even we in the body of Messiah fit within that culture all too easily. So if we want our houses in order, the first thing we must do is to fight with ferocity to worship the one and only God, the one true God, the God of Israel, without rivals. He's not running for office against any other gods. He's the only one. His term of office never ends. Worship God without rivals. Which also means have no other objects from other false religions in your home or, or worn on your person as jewelry. So, for example, one of the most uh, popular pieces of jewelry in the last 10 years was this so-called yin-yang symbol, uh, where you have a white a half teardrop over a black half teardrop. Very popular. That's the symbol from the Eastern religion of Taoism. And the idea of the white and black teardrops uh, over one another, uh, intertwined, symbolizes their belief that good and evil are equal, opposite, necessary forces that keep the universe in balance. Totally the opposite of what the scriptures say about God, about who God is. And that therefore is a rival to our God. We talk glibly about karma today. You know, karma is this Hindu belief that's inextricably paired with the other Hindu belief of reincarnation. Karma determines what happens when you're reincarnated, according to Hinduism. And so, but we glibly talk, we walk around talking about good karma, bad karma, but the whole concept is, is, is totally inapplicable and, and incompatible with the belief in the one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die, and then comes judgment. Reincarnation, therefore, is a non-biblical, pagan, Hindu concept. And by the way, sadly, many in our, in our society naively and, and ignorantly embrace it. And even more tragically, there are many, several sects within Orthodox Judaism that embrace this pagan concept of reincarnation. So be very careful what you go off and find on the Internet and study on your own. 
You want your own house in order, number one, and the overhead, worship God without rivals. Number two, build your home on a foundation of biblical love. Next verse, Deuteronomy 6, 5. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Build your home on a foundation of biblical love. Not the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love that we talked about in parts two and three of this series a couple months ago. The myth that says things like, this thing is greater than both of us. Or, we don't choose, we fall in love with. Or, the heart wants what the heart wants. (laughs) These popular phrases are all connected with this Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. The The myth that says that love is an overwhelming, uncontrollable, sensual force. Uh, that's what we've been brought up to believe. Uh, and what's the, the symbol of this love in, in our culture? Which, by the way, is very fitting because yesterday was Valentine's Day. Cupid. Cupid is the symbol of love. And Cupid just randomly strikes you with his arrow, and that's it. You're smitten. You have no choice in the matter. So, Hey, babe, I know we're married, but, but look, I was just minding my own business, and Cupid just struck me when this cute girl walked by, and that was that. <laughs> so we're going off together. Sorry about that, babe. I'm going to stop by and collect my stuff, okay? That's the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love in action. That's why people who've been married 20, 25, 30 years suddenly split up and feel perfectly justified uh, in moving on to the newest guy or the newest girl who just showed up. Do not buy into this myth. Because anything you can just fall into, you can easily climb out of as well. And because we believe that love is fickle, uh, uh, like, like that, we also have a hard time in our relationship with God. Because if that's how love works, uh, then when is God going to perhaps fall out of love with me? And if love is over, this overwhelming, uncontrollable, sensual force then there's no guarantee of God's commitment and fidelity. Indeed, some mothers, when they get pregnant with child number two, they say, oh my God, am I going to be able to love this baby like I love child number one? Why do they worry about that? Because we bought into this lie of this Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. Uh, And what if Cupid isn't there when baby number two is born? (laughs) We see the same confusion with adoption. My sister-in-law and her husband adopted two boys from Guatemala. Now, I don't know if this is the case with her, uh, but often people ask parents of adopted kids, well, do you love them like you love someone who, who's your natural child? Well, they're natural too. <laughs> do they look unnatural to you or artificial? <laughs> well, well, you know what I mean. Uh, do you love them like your own children? Well, they are my own children. <laughs> parents of adopted children love them just as much as any naturally born child. In fact, they were especially chosen by the parents uh, and adopted into their family. Just like Messiah adopted you and me uh, into his family. So why do people ask these silly questions? Because we believe in the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. Now Yeshua here quotes, Yeshua quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, again on the overhead, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. He quotes it in Matthew 22.37 where he says this, He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, notice how Yeshua, he paraphrases Deuteronomy slightly, slightly different from from the Hebrew text. Why? 
because the Hebraic concept of the heart includes your whole being, including your mind. It includes your mind, your will, your emotions. The heart, of course, in and of itself, is just a muscle that pumps blood. Uh, it knows nothing. It yearns for nothing. It loves nothing. Uh, it thinks nothing. It's just a muscle in the middle of your chest that pumps blood. But it's used in Hebrew as a metaphor for your entire being. But technically, it's actually your mind that's the only knower that you have. Your heart knows nothing. Uh, so Yeshua adds this clarifying reference to the mind so his Greek and Roman audience will understand what he's talking about in addition to his Jewish audience. So Yeshua is saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, with all your mind, with, with all your will. Uh, and, then he, and he also says uh, with all your soul, your, your nephesh, uh, your emotions. Sometimes literally in other parts of the Bible rendered in the Hebrew with all your intestines. Uh, so the next time you want to be romantic with your wife, tell her husbands, I love you with all my intestines. <laughs> but the idea here in Hebrew is that the intestines were seen as the seat of your emotions. Uh, in fact, when, we, when, we, uh, when we're nervous about something, we say we have butterflies in our stomach. When we're emotional, we say our stomach is all tied up in knots. Why? Because that's where you feel it. Uh, so these Hebraic phrases refer to the, the seat of your emotions. And then Deuteronomy talks about all your might as well. Uh, so again, on the overhead here, uh, as we look at it in parts two and three uh, of, of our series, here's our definition. Biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Biblical love is an act of the will. It's first and foremost a choice. It, it's not driven by emotion, but it is accompanied by emotion. And it's not passive, but it leads to action on behalf of its object. Uh, Yeshua showed his love for us by his actions. He died for us on the tree. Again, biblical love is a choice. It is not some random, fleeting, uh, irrational, uncontrollable force sent by Cupid. <laughs> no, we choose to love. It is a covenantal commitment. And if you believe the myth that we don't choose who we love, then no marriage is safe. God calls you to marital fidelity. He calls you to chastity and purity outside of marriage and fidelity and covenant commitment within marriage. And consistent with all of that, yes, biblically, you do choose whom you love. You choose to love. And some days it takes more choice than others. <laughs> it's an act of the will. For example, I, I, I tell Elizabeth, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> it's an act of the will. It's a choice. We've been married 37 years, and if Elizabeth will put up with me, God will, and be another 37 years. <laughs> Love is a choice. It's an act of the will. It's accompanied by emotion, meaning it's not void of emotion, but it's also not led by emotion. Love cannot be led by emotion because your emotions change. Sometimes they change hourly. Uh, as I said before, if you enter into a relationship led by emotion, you're going to set off thinking you've got a good deal, but then it's going to turn into an ordeal, and then you're going to look for a new deal. <laughs> but biblical love is not led by emotion. But it's also not void of emotion. Let's, look at the, let's read the Song of Songs. 
Some guys say, well, I'm the engineer type. I'm just, I'm just not emotional. Really. When you're on a golf course and you shank one, you don't say, well, golly gee, I seem to have hit that one poorly. <laughs> when you're watching the Super Bowl and your team's losing, you don't say, I noticed the other team seems to have more points than us. <laughs> no, that's not how you react. <laughs> We're incredibly emotional about the things we care about. In the same way, your love for your spouse should be accompanied by emotion. Love is not void of emotion. It is passionate. Our love for Yeshua should be passionate. Our love for our spouse should be passionate. And then finally, love leads to action on behalf of its object. Love acts on behalf of whom it loves. So when we love, we act on behalf of the other. This is biblical love, uh, an act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Want to see a picture of this? Look at Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Put this on the overhead, please. Oh, but not my will, but yours be done. I guess we got problems with the overhead. Anyways, Yeshua, he's crying out to the Father. He's sweating great drops of blood. And he prays these words. He says, let this cup pass. But not my will, Lord, but yours be done. It was an act of the will. Yeshua made a choice to embrace the cup. He made this choice out of his love for us and out of his love for the Father. And this choice was accompanied, by the way, with intense, by intense emotion, passionate emotion. He sweated great drops of blood. And it led to action on behalf of its object. He willingly went to the cross on behalf of you and me. He, he, he led to action for his bride, for his beloved. That's biblical love. The overhead's fixed. We'll go to the next one. Uh, biblical love, it's altruistic. It's other-oriented. It's self-sacrificial. And it's covenantal. If you build your home on the foundation of biblical love, everything in your life will be more secure. Well, I don't feel especially close to God today. That's okay. Love is an act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Oh, I just don't feel God's love. Well, do you feel the air in your lungs? Uh, guess what? You just borrowed that from God. He loves you. And by the way, he just gave you another breath. And you're right there, another one. <laughs> He's acting on your behalf right now. Your mind is working. You've got all your faculties. He's working and acting on your behalf right this moment. And by the way, you know him enough to be worried about whether he loves you. You know at least something of what it means to be his and to be loved by him. And again, on the overhead, biblical love is an act of the will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Build your home on a foundation of biblical love. Uh, and all of a sudden, that love relationship between you and, you and Yeshua will take on a whole new dimension. Next verse, Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. And these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Again, the Hebrew word lev or, or heart is not talking about the organ that pumps blood. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about, the, the, it's, it's talking not just the, the seat of your emotions, because that's nefesh in Hebrew, your will, but the reference to the heart Hebraically is to your will, it's to the core of who you are. 
So on the overhead, if we could uh, paraphrase this verse, we could read it to say, these words that I'm commanding you today are to be seared on your will. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way is to have a biblical worldview. We're to think biblically about everything. Second Corinthians 10.5, we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah. When God's word is on our heart, we will know instinctively how to respond to various circumstances that come up. You won't have to stop and think and look up some rule in a book. No, because God's word is seared on your heart, seared into your very will. Yeshua, through his spirit dwelling within you, changes your want to. He changes your desires, your priorities, your loves. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for joyful obedience to God. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah. Every thought. That's the goal. That's what it means to have God's word on your heart. On the overhead, if we want our houses to be in order, we need to, number one, worship God without rivals. Number two, build your home on a foundation of biblical love. Number three, we need to be committed to a biblical worldview. We need, we need to, to process uh, things and do things according to a biblical worldview and biblical truth. But we often balk at and, and resist this. So, for example, uh, when it comes to parenting, many of us would prefer to hear from Dr. Spock uh, and Dr. Phil and Dr. O Oprah rather than from Dr. Yeshua. <laughs> well, I'm having these problems with my children. Okay, what does the book say? What does the Bible say? Do you really believe, as we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed uh, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for every good work? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe the Scriptures will equip you for everything to which God calls you, including how to be a godly mother or father? That's what your conviction will be when his commandments are seared upon your heart. Next verse, Deuteronomy 6, 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk to them when you sit in your home, when you walk on the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. On the overhead, number four, if we want our houses to be in order, we must teach our children the word of God. According to the most recent uh, Barna survey, Less than 1% of American evangelicals have a weekly time of home-based family worship. Less than 1%. We're not catechizing our children. We're not reading the scriptures to our children. We're not worshiping at home with our children. We're not having family devotionals. We're just not doing it. And we think once a week or once every other week at shul is all we need and all our children need. How tragic, how misguided. And the attitude of, of most churches, sadly, most, um, especially the mega churches with these huge paid staff, is that the discipling of the children is their job. Oh, and they basically say to the parents, hey, leave this to us. We're the trained professionals. Don't try this at home. <laughs> and so in a lot of large congregations, you've got some 20-something guy uh, with skinny jeans and moose in his hair who has no kids of his own, thinking that he knows how to disciple your kids better than you do. <laughs> and many congregations, perhaps with the best of intentions, end up usurping the role of the parents. And they hire a full-time paid youth leader 
whose job it is to do what the Bible says is your job as the mothers and the fathers. Parents of Etzchayim, the Bible says it's your responsibility to disciple your children in your home. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's your responsibility to teach the word of God to your children and also to teach them a biblical worldview as well, to teach theology to your children, to teach history to your children, including the Judeo-Christian heritage of our country and not the secular humanist, anti-American, revisionist history taught by the public government schools. Listen to what Psalm 78 says about you teaching your children. Psalm 78, verse 5. For the Lord established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and then tell them to their children. Note how the fathers are commanded to teach their children, and then these children, in turn, grow up and teach their children. Door, uh, door by door, generation to generation. Fathers, you get one shot at this. What could possibly be more important? When your days are up one day, what will you ultimately leave behind, leave behind is your lasting legacy. One day you'll die. Last time I checked, the death rate was 100%. So you're going to die, and somebody else is going to get all your stuff. Your real legacy is your children. Are you doing all you can to disciple them while there's still time? What is the lasting spiritual legacy that you're leaving? And so many fathers say, well, I'll consume myself with my job, with my work, so I can provide all this stuff to my children. Whereas the real stuff they need is an active, engaged father who spends his time with them, disciples them, teaches them the word of God and the ways of God and how to be a godly man and a godly woman. As he spoke about last week, what they need is a father who teaches, reproves, corrects, and trains. Trains them in righteousness based on God's word. I found it ironic when I read about or hear about these top political figures or these top businessmen in their late 50s, early 60s, saying, I'm retiring early so I can devote time to my family. I find it ironic because it's too late by then. Your family's grown. Your family's gone. What I would like to ask them is, where were you when your children needed you? <laughs> Our society has it so backwards. Our society says, work like mad when your children desperately need you. Don't be around when they're growing up so that when they're gone, living the life that you did not train them to live, then you can have time for yourself. God help us. Teach your children at home. You've got one chance Ask anyone with grown children, and almost 100% of them will say, I wish, if I had a chance to do it all over again, I wish I could have spent more time with my kids. And not just frivolous time, 
for time training and instructing and discipling them in Messiah Yeshua. So fathers of Etzchayim, do not buy the lie of our society. Invest in discipling your children. Let them be your spiritual legacy that will carry on when you're gone to the next generation and the generation after that to your children's children, as Psalm 78 says, uh, and beyond. So door by door, generation to generation. So to have your house in order on the overhead here, we have number one, worship God without rivals. Number two, build your home on the foundation of biblical love. Number three, be committed to a biblical worldview. Number four, teach the word of God to your children. Number five, mark your home as God's territory. Next verse, Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be symbols between your eyes. Write them in the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. What this is saying is mark your home as God's territory. Mark your home as a place that belongs to God. Of course, the historic, literal understanding of this verse has been with the mezuzah affixed to your door, uh, which contains a parchment with various verses, including this verse. You can go beyond that as well and fulfill the intent and the spirit behind this command in additional ways. Notice, for example, how all the senses were engaged in, in temple worship when the temple, when the temple stood in place. Uh, so you saw with your eyes uh, the grandeur of the temple, a lot of it in gold. Uh, you felt the animals, you carried it in your arms uh, to, as a sacrifice offering. You heard the bells on the bottom of the priest's robe. Uh, you smelt the incense uh, being offered. You tasted uh, the meat of the fellowship offering that you shared with the priest. All of your senses were engaged in the, in the worship service, uh, and so therefore you remembered it. In the same way, think of ways to build memorable practices in your home. We talked about a lot of these last time, if you were here, about having the Word of God and, and memory verses in your home, uh, and praise and worship music in your home, uh, and family devotionals. Friday night Shabbat dinner is also a great tradition to build in your family. Uh, Pinky described this last week in her testimony. Uh, make it special. Make it something your kids look forward to uh, and eagerly anticipate every week. Uh, make sure it includes praying over your children and going over the weekly Torah portion. Uh, and whenever your kids smell that freshly baked challah bread, uh, fresh from the oven, filling the house with, it, with that sweet aroma, they'll connect this with the joy of the Shabbat. Find creative ways to mark your house, your home, as God's territory. And most of all, again, we talked about two weeks ago, uh, have regular family devotionals. Your kitchen table can become an altar where you and your family worship the Lord. A lot, uh, let, there be, let there be songs your children sing and instruments that they play during this time. Engage all the senses. Uh, worship the Lord in your home. Uh, and mark your home as God's territory. Let it be indelibly etched forever on your children's memory because of the praises that you and your family send up to God's throne. Mark your house as a place that belongs to God. And finally, number six on the overhead. Keep your prosperity in check. Next verses, Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. Then it shall come about... And the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you didn't build 
and houses full of good things which you didn't fill, and, and hewn cisterns which you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourselves that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. The word of God here says, when the Lord your God brings you into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, it gives you all these stuff, all these things, all this material prosperity and abundance, watch yourself. Be careful not to forget or neglect or take for granted the Lord your God. Because that's when you're most prone to forget all about God and to think that, it's, that you're responsible for all this prosperity and blessing and success. When things are going well is when you are most vulnerable. Prosperity is a test. Uh, it, it can be a temptation to think that you're self-sufficient and, and in need of nothing and no one, not even God. That's why Matthew 20, 19, 24, it says, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Uh, and of course, the context here is the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, he's, he, ruler, he's got all this stuff. And Yeshua says this to him, Matthew 19, 21, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And then Matthew 19, 22, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He had a lot of stuff, and that's hard to walk away from. Be warned, prosperity will subtly, silently, stealthily challenge your commitment to the Lord. Whereas adversity often drives us to our knees, drives us to prayer, drives us to depend on God. But prosperity tends to lure us away from the Lord because we start to focus on the gift and not on the giver. So keep your prosperity in check. If your goal is to have it all, you and your family will pay a price spiritually. And that's also why Contrary to what our modern feminist culture says, that's also why it's important for mothers to be able to be at home with their kids when they're young and to raise and nurture them and instruct and train them, especially during these first most crucial six to seven years when their lifelong character is being formed. Because the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. There's nothing more beautiful, nothing more powerful, nothing more precious Nothing more authentic than strong biblical womanhood. And there's nothing in shorter supply in our culture today, except perhaps authentic, strong, passionate, protective, providing biblical manhood. And as a result, many of our houses are not in order. Uh, and we're raising men uh, who are weak uh, and carnal and not proper biblical coverings for their homes. And therefore, we have women who are unprotected and not properly covered, and therefore frustrated uh, and anxious, and all too often wind up abandoning their babies uh, to a daycare center so that they can pursue some other path, uh, some other bag of lies that our culture has sold to them. But nothing is more important, especially when the children are young, than being able to raise and nurture them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So if you close this series on marriage and family, I encourage you on the overhead. Number one, worship God without rivals. Number two, build your home 
on the foundation of biblical love. Number three, be committed to a biblical worldview. Number four, teach the word of God to your children. Number five, mark your home as God's territory. And number six, keep your prosperity in check. If you do these six things, you'll have a house in order. And there's nothing, nothing in this world more important, more powerful, more valuable, or more needed than that. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you so much today for this multi-generational vision you've given us of our family-based and family-driven discipleship. Help each one of us to commit to getting our own spiritual homes in order. Help us to worship you, Lord Yeshua, in spirit and in truth and without rival. We repent from worshiping other gods, gods of prosperity, gods of convenience, gods of comfort and ease. We commit to worshiping only you, Lord, which means dying to ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following you, Yeshua. And we commit to building our homes, Lord, on a foundation of biblical, true biblical love, which is other-oriented and self-sacrificial and covenantal, which is a choice and a commitment, which is an act of our will, accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Help us to model this Messiah-like love in our home to our spouse and our children and our parents. Lord, let your words be on our heart. Uh, be seared on our will. Help us to think biblically, to take every thought captive, to serve and follow you, Yeshua, with joyful obedience. Help us to pass it on then to the next generation, to teach, reprove, correct, and train our children in righteousness, to have regular family devotionals, to make our home an altar, worshiping you in our home. Help us to find creative ways to mark our home, Lord, as your territory. Let that be our legacy that each day we prepare ourselves and our family and our home to be your sanctuary. We pray this all in your holy name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.